Ready to start, everyone? Yeah. So, today's going to be a very uh, different class than, than typical because today we're talking about the Jewish calendar and we're going to give an outline of what the structure of the calendar looks like, uh, how the Jewish calendar works, what are the uh, significant events of the Jewish calendar. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit, what we're going to try to do is, first of all, give it a, an overall, overall snapshot of how the Jewish calendar works, because I think it's very fascinating to learn how the, just how the Jewish calendar works. Uh, but also, we're going to go through the holidays of you know, the Jewish holidays, and what we're going to try to give is a little bit of an insight to the core ideas of that holiday. So what we're going to do is we're going to get the reasons for the holiday. Like, uh, is it memorializing something? Like, what's significant about the holiday? What are the themes, the major themes of the holiday? What are the major rituals, the mitzvahs of the holiday? And how it all fits in. And how, like, what we're going to try to do is take uh, all the other aspects of the holiday and just zone in, zero in on the core aspect of the holiday and to give you, like, you know, on, you know, just in one sitting, the Jewish calendar and all the events and the meaning, philosophy, and practice uh, behind the events. Okay. So that's the goal. And uh, I want to start off with how the Jewish calendar works. So uh, anyone here knows if we have a lunar or solar calendar? We have a lunar. We have a lunar, right? Is that true? How long is a lunar month? Who knows? 28 or 30? 29 30. 29 30. 100 degrees? Is this, uh, you know? Is this, I mean, this is, a, is this a set number? No, it's, month? yeah. I thought it was every 30 yeah. days. It's every 30 days? Exactly every 30 days? No. Because the way the lunar month looks is that you'll have, um, at the middle of the month, when it's full, and the end of the month, and also the beginning of the month, it's just a slight sliver. But the difference between the end of the month sliver and the beginning of the month sliver is that one sliver, the end of the month would look like this and the new month would look like that. If you ever notice that, people see, you just see a sliver, you don't notice which way it's actually, the, the crescent is facing. Okay. But the end of the month would look like this and the beginning of the month would look like that or, or, or the other way around. But the point is that they're... they're I'm going to have to look for that. I'm not sure I ever really was cognizant Well, of think that. about it. If, if, if the sun and, if the sun is, if, if the sun and the, and the earth, if the sun is giving light to the moon and it's just blocked by the earth and uh, all you're seeing is one sliver so it's however it's rotating it's the point is you're seeing one sliver from that side that sliver from the other side yes so it's west and east i don't know exactly which way it's spinning the point is is that it's 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 crescent facing either either like that or like that it would make sense that it would be east west because that's how we would view we never see a half moon north south so it has to be east west orientation so um I have no idea how it works. <laughs> Point is, this one way or the other. I don't know. Um, now, in the Talmud, it says there's lots of discussion about the month. The Talmud is obsessed with the whole idea of the calendar. I won't explain why. Uh, Talmud says that the exact time between uh, one month to the next month is 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes. Okay, I thought it was 29 and a half. Yeah, just 29 days. 12 hours, 44 minutes, and 3 seconds. It gives it, like, exactly, like, to the second. And today we know that, you know, thousands of years later that they're exactly accurate. Literally, to the millisecond. And what's interesting about that is that 
if you take 29, it's roughly 20 and a half months, just like the solar year is roughly 365 and a quarter days. That's why every four years you have to add a day to compensate. If you say 29 and a half and multiply that by 12 months, what do you end up with? 12, 12 times 29 and a half is 354. And what you find is, is that there's somewhat of a problem because if you have two, 354 days, then every year, every solar year, your lunar year is moving 11 days earlier than where it was in the, the way it was in the previous year. Correct? Mm-hmm. Because if the lunar year, let's say from June 1st to June 1st, takes 365 days, and that's with the seasons and with the cycle, then what it turns out is that the Hebrew day of June 1st, 2012, will be 11 days earlier, like uh, May 20th, 2013. And then it'll be 11 days earlier that, right? May 9th, 2014. And eventually, you'll have Pesach in the summer, or Purim in the winter, or... Uh, Rosh Hashanah will eventually be because you know, will eventually be you know in the spring as opposed to the fall. So, what the Jewish the way this Jewish calendar is structured is that every nineteen years we have seven leap years. Now, twelve months of the Jewish calendar: Tishrei, Cheshvan, Kislev, Tevis, Shvat, Adar, Nisan, Ir, Sivan, Tammuz, Av, and Elul. The names of the twelve Hebrew months. Every twelve Every 19 years, there's seven leap years. A leap year is defined as an extra month called the month of Adar. The month we're in today is Adar 1 and Adar 2. If you ask today, what is the today's Hebrew uh, calendar day? It's the 27th, 28th, 29th, something like that, of Adar 2. Because this year is a leap year. And this year we have two Adars. And what that does is that if you multiply... 7 times 30, you'll have 210. And if you multiply 19 by 11, you'll have also around 210, you'll have 209, but it's also a little bit more than that. So if you're losing 11 days and, and, and really 44 minutes every single year, or a little more than 45 minutes, you, that's what you're losing. If they compensate for that, they compensate for that over a... Uh, uh, you know, the big picture of, of 19 years, seven times with leap years, and it ends up that Pesach is always in the spring. And why is that important? Let's have Pesach in the summer, in the winter, the spring, spring's rebirth, the- renewal. Well, the Torah says is that you have to have Pesach bechodesh aviv in the spring. Pesach has to be in the spring. So that's why they devise a system that Pesach will always be in the spring, that it'll never be more than um, like 30 days in each direction away from uh, from from spring. It's always going to be springtime. So it'll be a little bit earlier, a little bit later, but it's always adjusted. Now, the Muslims, not much of an expert in Islamic law, but the Muslims have as well a lunar calendar. But they don't have this adjustment for the solar year. All they have is a lunar calendar. So, for example, the month of Ramadan which is a lunar month. So Ramadan always starts on Rosh Chodesh on the first day of the of a Jewish month and always ends on the, on the last day of a Jewish month. It's an entire month when they have fasting and prayers, whatever holiday at the end. Um, that could be any time during the year. 
Now it happens to be in June, July, and eventually it'll be earlier. It'll be May, and eventually earlier, early every, every year it gets on average eleven days earlier. And so Ramadan could be during the spring, during the summer where it's really long and hot, during the winter where it's really short because the days are shorter. And they don't and they don't adjust their their lunar month for a solar year. And What's interesting is that if you were a Muslim and you were 33 years old, right, you're 33 years old, you will have, have celebrated 34 Ramadans. Because every year it gets a little bit earlier. So every 33 years it reaches the point where it started 33 years earlier. And you just did it again. Because it, it kept on creeping earlier. So you so you've eventually you, you, you did it an extra time over 33 years. You would also have a birthday quicker. Well, if your birthday is linked to the, so, to the lunar year, that's correct. Yeah. So you'll be like, I'm 33 in Muslim years, but I'm actually 32 in uh, secular years. Yeah. I don't know how to work with the... With the uh, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, but that's another strong, strong point. Yeah. That, that's the way it would work. And your birthday is like, could be any time during the year. Uh, you know, it's not linked to the seasons. Uh, but we have, because we have our... We have a requirement in the Torah that our calendar be uh, uh, be uh, compatible, or not compatible, but, but always be linked to the solar, to, you know, to the to to the solar year, to the seasons. Therefore, it's done in this very clever way that every nineteen years, so it means every second or third year, you have an extra uh, month of Adar, like we're celebrating right now, the second month of Adar. And uh, if you remember, uh, Pat, uh, Sukkot is typically six months uh, before Pesach. This month, this year, people, most people don't even notice because they're, they're not thinking in the Hebrew calendar. But this year, it's actually seven months because there's an extra month of Adar. And I happen to like it. I like uh, I like big, nice, awesome winters. It's like when you're in yeshiva, like in the yeshiva system is linked to the Hebrew calendar. So you'll have, let's say, the uh, winter session be either five months or six months, depending on what uh, kind of year you have. What, what happens if uh, there's a significant event in your life, like you get married or you're born in a month of Otter, and then after the seven leap years are over, just like, you know, can't do our anniversary again for another uh, 19 years, baby? <laughs> no, no, it's not seven in a row. Oh, okay. It's not seven in a row. It's scattered over over 19 years. Okay, there's seven. Yeah, it's a 19 year, sca- year cycle. And how are they stepped in? I mean, how many? Well, how it's, many? It's, it's two years, then three years, then two years, then three years, basically. Okay, okay. Because every year, every year you're losing 11 days. So let's say you, you let's say year one, you lose 11. Year two, you're down 22. Okay. Year three is already a leap year. Every so you will be down 33, okay. but you made up 30 of it. Okay. So you're down three. So what do you do in that situation then? Huh? You just don't. No. So the way it works is with 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 the two others. It's an interesting, an interesting. Uh, this is like an interesting trivia. Um, the way it works with the, with the month of Adar. So let's say my son was born also on a leap year, and he's born in Adar, Adar one, eighteenth of Adar one, right, two thousand and eight, February twenty fourth. My oldest son. Uh, now, when there's only one Adar, only one month of Adar, then he just celebrates whatever the eighteenth of that month. And when it's a multi, when it's a two two day adar, a two I'm sorry, two month adar year, then he celebrates uh, the first one, which is the one that he was born in. Okay. But what's interesting is this is the trivia question: you could have two boys 
one of them born a week earlier, and he'll have his bar mitzvah three weeks later. How's that possible? If if I, let's say, was born at the end of Adar 1, it was a leap year, so two Adars. I was born at the end of Adar 1. My neighbor and friend was born a week later at the beginning of Adar 2. So he was born, let's say I was born the 27th, and he was born the 3rd of Adar. Of Adar. I was born the 27th of Adar 1, he was born the uh, 3rd of Adar 2. And during the year of our Bar Mitzvah, there was only one Adar. It wasn't a leap year. So when do I celebrate my Bar Mitzvah? On the 27th of Adar. That's my birthday. When does he celebrate his Bar Mitzvah? The 3rd of Adar, because that's his birthday. But that happens to be 25 days before me, even though I was born before him. That's an interesting thing. But uh, with regards to anniversaries and birthdays, it's you always have one. It's not like the February 29th, where it only shows up once every four years. So to be clear, so it's the first year, there's no water. Second year, there's well, no water. Well, it, it, it's, it's not a first. There's no start or end. Well, it's just 19 it's, years. It's, it's, yes, I don't know what the, the original date was. They've been doing this for thousands year of years. No water. Next year will be otter one. Next year we'll have two otters. And then it goes back to no water. Is that correct? You're always going to have a month of no, the why does it have to be? Why does it have to be the first year? Means it's hypothetical. The hypothetical right. first year. So whenever you start yeah. at the at ground zero, so hypothetical first year, you would have let's say three years later, the third year. Year one, no, uh, only one other. Year two, uh, one other. Year three, two others. Okay. Okay. Year four, uh, one other. Year five, two others, and then maybe three years later. That makes it is sense? a screwy yes, system, you must admit. No, it isn't. Actually, it works out perfectly. It's just not, just, we're not the ones doing the calculations. Exactly. I guess and if we were into moment. this, it would come natural, but and, I think but it's pretty I, weird. Even, but even the solar calendar, like, or the Gregorian calendar, so you know that there's a February 29th every four years. Right. Correct? But would you also know that every 100 years, there's no February 29th, even though 100 years is... Uh, you, Long span. It's, it's, a, it's, it's it should, But it should be one of the fourth... Every, if every four years, you have... Uh, February 29th, then every 100 years, it's also, uh, you know, it's one of the, it's, it's 25 times 4. It's, so it should be every fourth year, it should also be that. But it's it's a little bit to make, to make the compensation. But every 400th years, there is a, <laughs> there is a February 24th. Uh, so, so yes, it, it's it's not for the simpletons. And no. That's, but that's why there's people that, that, that um, and what's interesting is that you look at the, in Jewish history, one of the things that was heavily targeted, one of the Jewish rituals that was so targeted uh, by the, you know, the regimes that tried to undermine Judaism was the calendar. I think it's so bizarre. Like, calendar is such a non, it's not essential part of life. Like, it's just, it is, you know, the calendar is the calendar. It's just, it is what it is. Uh, we don't think about the calendar so much. You know, it's just, it's kind of the blueprint for our life. But it's already built in. But if you, disassociate the Jews from their calendar, well, when's Yom Kippur? Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it yesterday? When was the first day of the month? Well, that was one of the fundamental reasons why the Council of Nicaea, uh, that was one of the big tenets of the Council, the first they, Council of that they Nicaea. That they should, in 325, that they should have... They wanted control over their own calendar. Um, it was one way for um, them to, um, to organize all of their various... Territories, mm-hmm. but we don't even have we don't even have to go to the Gentiles. We have in the in the Jew, in the Jewish people the efforts to have a unif, un, one unified central body determine yeah. uh, 
Um, and what's interesting, the Talmud talks about, Tractate Rosh Hashanah talks about the process of of, uh, of sanctifying a new month. Because you know, every month, if it's 29 and a half days, so it can either skew to the 30 or it can skew to 29. And that's why you have some Rosh Chodeshes, some first day of the month, which is two days, and some of them which is only one day. If it's a, if the previous month is a 29-day month, then the 30th is the first of the following month, so that's the one-day Rosh Chodesh. If the previous month was a 30-day month, then the day 30 uh, of the previous month and day 31, which is number one of the following month, are both Rosh Chodesh. That's why you'll have in the Jewish calendar, sometimes you look at the Jewish calendar, it says Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the month, and it has two days. Right. This upcoming Tuesday is a Rosh Chodesh, but it's only one day, because the previous month was a 29-day month. Uh, as opposed to other months, where there's a th- previous month is a 30-day month, because it's 29 and a half days between every uh, beginning of every lunar cycle. So you would have uh, two days of Rosh Chodesh, uh, the 30th of the previous month, and the first of uh, the following month, the upcoming month. But in, in Rosh Hashanah, where it talks about... Uh, Jewish calendar, the process of, of sanctifying a new a new, um, a new month, it says that this is the one of the things that you're allowed to transgress the Shabbat. And the Talmud was very, very strict about the prohibition of Shabbat. Uh, but you were allowed to transgress the Shabbat in order to come to Jerusalem to testify that you saw the new month. So if, let's say, hypothetically, someone sees a new month um, on a Friday night and he lives outside of Jerusalem... So he's allowed to, you know, hitch a cab and or take his car and drive to Jerusalem or take his donkey or whatever, um, even though that may entail transgression of Shabbat, because it's such a vital need that the entire Jewish life is suspended unless this works in a fluid manner. Right? Therefore, uh, therefore, it, it's 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 an exception where you're allowed to you're allowed to transgress the Shabbat in order to uh, take steps to preserve it. Is that the only exception? No, there are other exceptions. Well, like um, sacrifices in the temple were brought on Shabbat. You know, you're not allowed to slaughter. One of the 39 prohibitions of Shabbat is not to kill an, an animal. So, you can't kindle fire either. Well, you can't kindle a fire. Another example, right? So they made, but they made a fire every, uh, you know, that's, but that's a, the, that's a specific verse in the Torah that says this is an exception to the rule. Obviously, to save a life, we know that. Um, other examples. But, the, uh, you know, but it's, but it's a rare thing. But this underscores the centrality of the calendar to Jewish life and practice. Because if you don't know when Yom Kippur is, and you don't know is it today, is it tomorrow, well, you just basically derailed Jewish practice. If you don't know what day is Pesach, when is Pesach start, when is Pesach end, well, then how, how, can you observe, how can you observe Judaism like that? And they had a whole system of how they would, because at a point in time, especially during the Second Temple era, the majority of Jews were living in Babylon. And there's no cell phones, emails, or Twitter, or Facebook. How, right? How exactly you conveying this message of when the new month starts? What exactly is the first day of the month, and when is this, when is the, you know, and when's the last of the previous month? What's the first day of this month? It'd be 29 or 30 days. You don't know. So they had a system where they would climb up on top of the uh, mountains at middle of night, and they would wave um, torches, fire, to the following mountains, right? And in Eventually, the, the, they would go one to the, to the next to the next, and then they would just transmit the message um, very quickly across a vast a vast area of land. So they had to make sure that someone was living on each of them. Yeah, they knew because you you know if it's either today or tomorrow. Everyone knows that. It's all it's, okay. so it's a question of one or two days. It's not like it could be any day of the, of the month. Right. 
So is it going to be a new month or is it going to be a, uh, is the previous month going to be a larger month? It's called a Chodesh Mubaris. It's like a pregnant month. <laughs> they call it when the previous month is a 30-day month. It's a bigger month. Uh, so then the, the, then the day 31 uh, would be day one of the, of the following month. So they were always in the lookout. Is it today? Is it today? I don't know. Let's let's you know, people stay up at night. And oh no, it's not today. It must be tomorrow. And once it's not once it's not uh, day thirty, you know for sure it's day thirty one. You don't even need any sign. Okay. So that's uh, how the calendar works. Um, just the management of the calendar. I know. I don't know if you know, I, to me I find it fascinating. But I guess it could be boring. Like okay, numbers, uh, mathematics. Uh, the calendar that we use today. Um, we don't have a centralized body to make uh, to make the uh, calculations for us. We don't have the, the court to uh, people come testify exactly to say what they saw. Was it like this? Was it like that? What the angle? Did you see it on top? You know, they would ask all these questions to determine the veracity of the of the witnesses. We don't have that today. So what are we using? We have Google. It's very fascinating. In the fourth century, there's a fellow by the name of Hillel II. It's called Hillel II. And he devised a system to make uh, the calendar, uh, the Jewish calendar, um, continue on in perpetuity. I don't know exactly how it works, but the system we have today is based upon Hillel II's uh, system of, 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 um, of, you know, just developing um, the Jewish calendar and just having it repeat itself it all works and out. it always syncs up with the new moon yes it's just sync yeah right. because we know exactly how long every moon every moon takes we know exactly to the to the to the second so therefore you could just project it you don't need to make evaluations calculations every month because you know exactly when the uh the previous month was and then the following month is going to be because you just do add 29 days 12 hours 44 minutes and 30 seconds um what did I just have something I wanted to say? Oh gosh, I hate when this happens. <laughs> As I was sitting here listening to you, I took a, I went to a little thing one time on the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. and the person doing the little presentation said that was one of the fundamental reasons why the Essenes moved away, and that was they wanted control over the calendar. They didn't like the way the rabbis were doing it, so. I remember thinking that was probably a, um, it had to have been an awfully big thing for them to to move away and go out in the middle of nowhere, all because they were fussing about the calendar. So they must have thought the calendar was of huge importance. Yeah, well, that's one of the things. We know that the Essenes, the people who lived in Qumran, they had apocryphal writings. Mm -hmm. They had their own laws. Uh, Probably they were celibate. You know, they were they were like the people that uh, were, you know, predicting doom and the world's coming to an end, and just live like practice, like 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 preparing for this apocalypse and living in caves. So that's why they died out. So, you know, but it's more than that. But yes, like we said, the calendar was a huge thing, uh, was a huge aspect of of the continuation of Jewish life. What I just remember, what I wanted to say, um, the Jewish the dateline. So when does Monday turn to Tuesday? This is an interesting question um, because if you were to just travel at 24 or at 1,000 miles an hour directly under the sun, it would always be 12 o'clock noon wherever you travel. Theoretically, if you were to go, if you were able to go on an airplane that just 
mirrors the sun's, it, time would never change. So when the Sunday turn into Monday and Monday turn into Tuesday. So what we have is the international dateline, which is this arbitrary point in time, uh, point in, in location in the uh, Pacific Ocean, where if you're on one side of it, it's uh, it's you know it's Sunday, and the following side of it is Monday. So it could be Sunday morning, and then you just scoot over, and it's Monday morning, right? International dateline. Um, in halacha, where the the Jewish dateline uh, is, is a point of major uh, contention, and was very much a factor in, let's say, during uh, World War II, when many Jews escaped to Japan. And Japan is um, on the on the western side of the international dateline, but because Japan is an island and separated from mainland. Uh, Asia, uh, there are there, there are opinions that say that it's actually um, on the previous date line. It means the date line is actually um, would be where Asia ends, where Asia the mainland ends. So, it, it, you know, in essence, you have people that live in Japan, and there was a debate as to which day is Yom Kippur. Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Which day is, is it? Which day? Which day is Shabbos? Which day is Sunday? This was a legit. This is a major issue. There's tons of scholarship written on this as to where exactly is the point where Sunday turns into Monday, and hence the ramifications for for Jews is enormous. Uh, there was uh, some guys. I know that we have some documentation of some individuals who, uh, because of Yom Kippur, they decided to fast two days, back to back. Can you imagine? We have a hard, hard enough time fasting for one one day. Yeah. And there were these people that fasted for for two. Anyhow, um, so that's uh, so that's how the calendar works. Now, the spiritual element of the calendar is we we could view time as being linear or being circular. And very interesting that in Judaism we we say that certain times have certain spiritual energies. So, for example, let's we have the upcoming holiday of Passover. So Passover is about redemption. It's about renewal. It's about the foundation of the nation. It's about faith. Those are the themes of, and we'll go into detail with every one of the holidays. But that's, there was an event that happened at that time. And that event was a uh, revealing of certain spiritual powers, spiritual energies. And though those energies are forever associated with those days. And when we once again reach that same point in time in the year, we can relive that same experience. When we think about memorialization, right? You know, today something X, Y, or Z happened, you know, 20, 50, 100,000 years ago. Typically, the way we view it as, okay, fine, something happened a long time ago. It didn't happen today. It's not really relevant today, but today happens to be the same day. So let's memorialize it today. And Judaism doesn't work like that. Judaism we view time as being certain spiritual stations. And us traveling through time, not just time passing us by. So, and the Jewish calendar being sort of like a racetrack. You're kind of reliving, right? You, or you could reapproach that same spiritual station that was established when, when that set event happened. So Passover, the holiday of Passover, and the revelations of Passover, and the experiences and the themes of Passover are forever linked those days that Passover happened in. 
And when we reach Passover, it's as if we settle down in a certain station, a certain spiritual station that has spiritual energy that's linked to that holiday. So this makes it this makes the experience of all Jewish holidays be you know a totally different one. It's not like it's just okay, let's memorialize what happened. Uh, you know, thousands of years ago. And it happened to happen this day, so it's just relevant for us today. It's much deeper. It's on this day, in 2014, we can tap into the same spiritual energy that existed in Passover 3,300 some odd years ago. So that's why the prayers, the uh, practices, the experiences that we do today on Passover, or on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, right? those things are linked or are directed in a certain way or formed in a certain way to enable us to maximize on that energy. So it has relevance for us today. If Passover is a time of redemption, then it's a time for us today to have certain redemptions. Spiritual redemptions, physical redemptions, because that's the energy of the day. And hence, the experiences, the mitzvahs, the rituals of the day are there to teach us to be able to maximize that spiritual energy that exists in that day. So what we're going to try to do is we're going to look at the Jewish calendar in the, in the holidays and take a look at the primary mitzvahs and themes of the day and to understand where it came from and also today how when we reach that spiritual station in time, how do we maximize it? And the attempt is going to be to try to give the core idea of that particular holiday. To not, not deal with all the, because there's a lot. You could talk, I could speak for three days on, on, on Passover, because there's so many various aspects of, you know, if you break it down to the, you know, the finer points, there's lots of other things to talk about. We're going to deal with the core idea and the core uh, rituals, and that way we'll have a snapshot of the Jewish holiday in, you know, in, you know, in a nutshell. What does I want to say about that? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so the Jewish calendar starts with the month of Tishrei. And the first day of the month of Tishrei is a day that we all know. It's called Rosh Hashanah, New Year's. It's where the the first day of the new year. And what happened on that day? Anyone knows what happened on Rosh Hashanah? What are we quote-unquote memorializing? Or what are we quote-unquote reliving? What's being renewed? The day God made man, right? The day God made man. So this is, most people would say, you happen to be uh, more knowledgeable than the average fellow. Most people would say, well, that's the day the world's created. It's actually incorrect. You're correct. They're incorrect. Uh, the day the world was created in Jewish uh, philosophy is on the 25th day of El. That was day one of creation. Fast forward six days. What do you have? The first day of Tishrei. That's the sixth day of creation. What happens sixth day of creation? God made man. So that's what we're memorializing. But what are the themes? So we have the idea of judgment. Right? We were talking about how uh, man's sins and man's uh, mitzvahs are put on the scale. We're judged. We're given a, a, a verdict for the upcoming year. Hence, it's a time for personal reflection, for evaluation. What did I accomplish over the previous year? What am I going to accomplish over the next year? It's a time also for a kingdom of God. It's like we talk all about 
the kingdom of God. You read the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah, and it just talks about how God's dominion and God's control, and everyone will know it. And uh, and you seem to you see a lot of disparate, seemingly disparate ideas. Uh, on one hand, you have judgment, and on the other hand, you have God's kingdom. And we know the myth. So, what's the myth of Rosh Hashanah? What's the ritual most associated with Rosh Hashanah? We have the shofar. That's the mitzvah. That's the mitzvah of the day. And the shofar seems to be like an awakening call, uh, a call to action. Uh, and what does that have to do with that? Like, what's what's happening here on Rosh Hashanah? Well, what's the core idea, and how is it all linked to, to, together? So, we have uh, in we mentioned this in a previous uh, series that. God, when we ask the question of why did God create the universe? Assuming you already believe in God, well, why would he do it? Intelligent uh, intelligent beings do things for intelligent reasons. So God, being the ultimate intelligence, created something very sophisticated, probably for an intelligent reason. And uh, one of the answers that we gave is because God, if there's no man, God's kingdom is diminished. Why? Because there is no independent voice testifying to his dominion, to his kingdom, so to speak, to his dominance. So, hence, God created man, and man, with his capacity of free will, can choose whether or not to accept, to embrace the idea of God. And if man embraces uh, with his own, so to speak, impartial right, uh, position or, or decision-making ability, and he decides to recognize God, then God is like independently verified, so to speak, and he becomes a king with subjects, as opposed to just being a king on an island by himself. And as Rosh Hashanah is the day where Adam was created, it's the day of man's renewal, but that also coincides with God's kingdom being renewed. And the spiritual energy that's associated with Rosh Hashanah is A, man was born today was and hence is renewed today. Every year there's a new idea of man. And we could come to Rosh Hashanah and reinvent ourselves as well. Man being renewed, we could do that as well. But additionally, it's also God's kingdom being renewed. Because this was the day where his kingdom was formed. Because this is the day where Adam got up and said, God exists. And to a certain measure, the idea of creation was brought to, a certain aspect of creation was fulfilled. God's kingdom being uh, testified to by by uh, independent being, by, by man. So those are the two themes. Renewal, but renewal of man and renewal of God's kingdom. What happens when a kingdom gets renewed? What happens when there's a uh, administration that was around for the previous year and says, okay, now we're now we're around again, so to speak. Right. What happens with a new administration? What do they do? Well, it depends. Change? Okay. Sorry. Well, it depends. Well, there's no, there, there's an, uh, sort of an inauguration of the, even though they're... Okay, well, what would you do? You have you have think of think of it starting anew as at a new position of leadership. Changing the things you don't like. Right? Or what what do you do before you change you don't like what you don't like? You find out 
have to first acknowledge. You have to, you have to evaluate. Yes. You have to weigh and judge to find out who is positively contributing and who is not positively. Who is pulling their own weight? Right? If you become a, the CEO of a big company, the first thing you're going to do is make a system-wide or company-wide uh, analysis of you know, the, the, you know, the big picture, the business, and who's contributing and who's pulling their weight and who should we let go. Right? And because Rosh Hashanah is the day where God's kingdom is renewed, everyone is being evaluated. Okay, we have a new, we have a new kingdom here. Let's, okay, let's take every individual. They're all part of this big company, big business, so to speak. And they're humans, and humans, their goal is to be symbols of God's dominion. And therefore, every person is evaluated. Okay, let's see what, let's see what you have to show for yourself. Let's look at your actions, at your activities, at your beliefs, at your practices, at your interaction with other people, and see if you are positively impacting this kingdom or negatively impacting this kingdom. Hence, the idea of judgment is a direct result of the idea of renewal of, of, of the kingdom. And that coincides with us as humans being renewed as well on this day. So, our reinvention that we could potentially tap into Rosh Hashanah has multiple benefits to it. Number one, it's for ourselves as well. It's for ourselves. We all want, we all, there's no more valuable pursuit for man than to actually evaluate his actions and his direction in life and his values and his perspectives. There's nothing, there's nothing better for, you know, for a man to actually achieve his goals. When I say man, I mean mankind, not just men versus women. It's a requirement on everyone. So it's a time for us to try to maximize our life. Why? Because now is a chance to reinvent myself and to come up with a, to assess where I am, where I want to go. Uh, how am I going to get there? What are the obstacles am I, you know, facing me? But the additional benefit of that is, is that when we come to negotiate with the Almighty and try to you know, show him how we're, we're a positive influence uh, or, or we're a subject, so to speak, that he wants to keep on for the upcoming year, we can reinvent ourselves with a dedication to being more of a valiant servant or a, a, a valiant, uh, I don't know, revolutionary is a bad word. Revolution is always a bad word. Uh, but cog in this machinery that's, and the, you know that's that's the goal of humanity, and we're going to take a more active role in that, especially the Jewish people, being a light to the nation. We're going to and we're going to reinvent ourselves and say this upcoming year, I'm making I'm making this pledge, this resolution to do uh, more for the Jewish people and for the cause, you know, the cause of of of, of revealing God's uh, God's uh, dominion to the world. And the shofar, what's the shofar for? The shofar is all about awakening. Right? On one hand, the shofar is about, uh, it's, like a, it's like a trumpet that you blow to announce the new leadership. Right? There's, a new, there's a renewal of the kingdom. Let's, make, let, 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 let's have an inauguration. Inauguration, you have the trumpets. The trumpets are, you know, that, that's the shofar on one hand. On the other hand, the shofar is also awakening. It's also going to wake us up from our slumber. It's a very... Uh, hallowed, the hallowed sounds of the shofar are there to try to help us, to nudge us along in our uh, quest, or in, our, in, in the imperative that we, that's facing us of personal reinvention. So, 
the mitzvah of the day is closely linked with the two themes of the day, which all reference back to that original point in time right. where, uh, where that spiritual station was formed, the spiritual station of personal renewal and of, and of uh, God's dominion. So that's Rosh Hashanah. What does that one say about that? We know Rosh Hashanah now? What's the next event in, uh, what's the next significant event in the Jewish calendar? Yom Kippur. Well, actually, there was a, huh? Sorry? Well, Tashlich is part is part of Rosh Hashanah ritual. And if you read Tashlich, you'll notice that it's uh, very closely, um, like I said, there's other aspects of of Rosh Hashanah that we didn't get into. Um, but uh, there, this is the core idea. Tashlich will fit in very, very nicely as a subcategory of this idea. Now, uh, interestingly, between... Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you actually have a minor fast day. In, in the Jewish calendar, there's six days which are fast days. Um, sorry, that's six. I went like that. That's actually six. Uh, two of them are major fast days, and four of them are minor fast days. And there's differences. If it's a minor fast day, then it's not, then like it's much, much uh, more lenient. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing where if you're not feeling well, you don't have to fast. Um, you know, people, it's it's much, much, much more lenient. But the day after Rosh Hashanah is a day called Tzom Gedalia, the fast of, of Gedalia, which um, this fellow Gedalia was uh, after the first temple was destroyed. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, you know, think, you know, 400 and, I don't know the exact date, something 400 uh, or f- the 5th century before the Common Era. Jewish people uh, were in control of the land since the days of King David and King Solomon, 400 years. You had the split of the kingdom of, of Judah in the south and the kingdom of Israel in the north, which is a very sad chapter in Jewish history. Uh, but the kingdom in the south, uh, they had a temple. And um, eventually, for whatever reason, it was destroyed. Uh, and then certain parts of the land were allocated to be um like their own like provinces, so to speak. And there was a province called the province of Judah, which was given by the um, congregant authorities of the Babylonians, was given control to the governor. As the governor was, there was a governor that, you know, installed by the name of Gedalia, uh, and he was assassinated by a Jew, a Jewish uh, zealot of sorts on that day. And because that day, marked the end of at least some semblance of Jewish sovereignty over Israel. It's a day that we look back on in infamy, and the rabbis instituted a fast day. Uh, so, he was the king of... Uh, he wasn't the king. He was... The way the, the, way the ancient conquering uh, countries, uh, nations would work is that they would install local local, local, local governors. Okay. Uh, so they, they installed this guy. Gedalia uh, seems like he was a good guy, and he was Jewish, and he, and he would control the government... Over it was you know over Israel, but he unfortunately was assassinated, and because that wasn't as significant obviously as the temple and Jewish sovereignty in the entirety of Israel uh, being vanquished, it wasn't as significant. But because it was the last little bit of Jewish control over the land of Israel that was ended, therefore we marked that with a with a minor fasting. Why did they not put in another 
um, governor over the land. I don't know exactly what the politics were. I get. I, I don't know. It's, there was already a mass migration uh, to, to the east, as we know, uh, and that kind of actually never, never, almost never came back. You know, uh, after the Jews left, the Jews left uh, to head eastward after the first temple, even before the first temple. Uh, even though, like, tremendous individuals by the name of Ezra, we all know the name of Ezra, they came back 70 years later to rebuild the temple, and the temple was rebuilt, the second temple, and Israel once again flourished as a hub of Jewish, uh, you know, the center of Jewish life, but it never quite reclaimed the status that it had, you know, the first temple times. And the majority of the Jewish community was always in Babylon. Always found Thousands of years. Challenging. Yeah, it is. But what does the Thomas say about Israel? It says Israel is acquired with suffering. It's a very tough place to make it. Well, one of the first pronouncements that Ezra says is that um, you have to leave all of your wives and children and go back and find Jewish wives and children. Always find well, that, it, that that well that well, that was because he was there was actually only a hundred and twelve people who were who were intermarried. A hundred and twelve. That's that's what it says. Oh, only 112 people that were actually intermarried, but that was, uh, in Ezra's uh, uh, view, a, a blemish of the people. I've never heard that number yes. before. Google it, I'm sure it's there. because they read the, the law, right? And, and they say which Yeah, and, and, you know, Ezra, Ezra was a fascinating character. We look at Ezra as being something, someone who, the Talmud testifies, who could have been like Moses. You know, he, you know, with regards to the, uh, writing of the Torah, the, the, the script that was used to write the Torah, the language, um, the uh, Assyrian script of Hebrew versus the Hebrew script of Hebrew. Like the Hebrew that we have today, you open up the Hebrew, uh, is the Hebrew that the Torah originally was written in. Uh, but over the years, they started using a different a different um, language. Not, not language, same letters, but different uh, different ways of writing the same letters, called Ketav Ivri. And uh, Ezra is the one who's, one of his major accomplishments was to change the letters that people used to uh, to write Hebrew with. Uh, but he also built the temple. And he was the, he was the, he was the Jewish leader in Israel who went back to Israel to rebuild the temple. But the majority of Israel did not follow with him. Uh, the majority of Israel, I'd say only about 5%, came back with him. Which is ironic, someone's pointed out that with the foundation of the, of the state of Israel in 1948, only about 5% of, of the Jews were back in Israel. Interesting that, uh, you know, people, the Jewish people spend years and years away from Israel, yearning to go back, and then when they finally go back, well, most people just opt to stay out. <laughs> it's more comfortable uh, elsewhere. Can, can you elaborate a little more on the minor fast versus yes, the major yeah. fast? Yeah, uh, minor fasts means that the fast starts uh, at dawn of the, the day of the fast and the end at sunset. So uh, if it's a winter fast, then it'll be relatively short, like 12 hours, 10 hours, whatever, depending. And if it's a uh, summer fast, like the 17th of Tammuz, it'll be longer because the days are longer. So it'll be about 14 hours. As opposed to major fasts, major fasts are much more significant, uh, like Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av are the only two major fasts, and they start with the night before, the previous night, so it's, a, so it's always a 24 hours, 24 hour fast, it's a much okay. more significant, obviously it's a much more significant event, for very, very different reasons, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av are 
literally the opposite ends of the spectrum of the reasons why we fast. We'll get to that. But they're major fasts because they're much more significant and it's much longer. It's the entire Hebrew day. Entire, the day we know that in, in, in the Jewish life, the, the day starts with the night before, the eve of. So like Friday night is already Shabbat. Uh, because the Shabbat starts with Friday night. So similarly, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, it's the entire Hebrew date, which is the 10th day of Tishrei, 10 days after Rosh Hashanah. And it starts with the night before, the eve of Yom, of, of Yom Kippur, and it ends the uh, the following evening uh, at sunset. Do you still think fasting is a big deal? Do you still feel that... Um whether it's a minor fast of 12 hours or a major fast of 24 hours, you still think that, um, I don't want to say it carries weight, but I don't know how to language it differently. Do you, th- do you still think fasting is a big deal? Uh, is it a big deal? Do you deal? still think it's something I, I, that we should be required to do? Well, I'm saying, I can only say what the Torah says about it. Um, well, minor fasts are, you know, as their name might suggest, more minor. Um, so, like, a lot of people are much, much more lenient about it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Tishbav, uh, the Talmud declares that someone who uh, doesn't mourn the temple being destroyed won't merit seeing it be rebuilt. So that, you know, that seems to put, you know, tremendous, a lot of weight, lot of weight on that. And, 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 and like, in, Tishbav is rabbinic. It's important to note, it's not in the Torah. But Yom Kippur is in the Torah. And Yom Kippur, uh, the um, the the Torah, the Torah's uh, declaration of someone who does not fast in Yom Kippur is that they get what's called karis. Karis means that they're like kind of disenfranchised from the Jewish people. So that's very significant. So it views someone not fasting Yom Kippur as if they're abandoning the entire people, which is a theme that we'll see a lot with Yom Kippur. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this here, but I'll get to you in a second, Shana. But uh, the Talmud says that someone who uh, someone who sees a seminal emission on Yom Kippur will die that year. Very interesting stat- thing in the Talmud. Someone who sees a seminal emission on Yom Kippur will die that year. But if they don't die, then they should know that they're a perfect tzaddik, or a perfect righteous person. Let's read that again. Wait a minute. I'll slow this down. <laughs> A man who sees a seminal emission on Yom Kippur will die that year. But if they don't die, then they should know that they're a perfect, righteous person. What does that even mean? So, the way it works is like this, and this will bring us up onto Yom Kippur, and I'm not going to forget your question, but Yom Kippur is a day when the entire Jewish people are restricting themselves from pleasure. You don't eat. Um, on Yom Kippur, there's certain like requirements, what kind of shoes you'll have to wear, a little bit less comfortable shoes. And we're doing that as a unit. Yeah. We do a lot of things as a unit because we want to be judged as a unit. We don't want to be judged individually. The second someone says, you look at me, examine all my actions. I can withstand the test. What they're calling into, uh, in, you know, into light is their own personal accomplishments. And then they run the risk of being judged as, as an individual. And if you're judged as an individual, you better worry. You're probably going to die that year because most people can't stand the the test of uh, the rigorous test of being judged as an individual. So this person, so everyone, if everyone is 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 withholding from pleasure, 
And this person sees a seminal mission, which means that he's engaging in, in personal. What he's saying is, I am not part of the group. I'm an individual. He's taking himself out of the group and saying, the group is doing this, I'm doing something else. So he will be judged as an individual, and he'll probably die that year. Because most people won't be able to, to withstand the test of, of, per, of being judged as an individual. But if he doesn't die, he knows for sure that he stood the test as an individual. He was as an individual, and he didn't die. And now he knows. He's like, you know that you're a tzaddik. You know that you're a righteous person. Um, so that answers your question by saying that fasting on Kippur is something that the entire community does. So the Torah declares if someone says, I don't want to be part of this community, I am rejecting what the Jewish people for millennia have done and our grandparents, and even today, it's widely observed. What they're in essence saying is that I don't want to be part of the people. Hence, they get covered they're disenfranchised from the Jewish people. So I would say that with, with regards to your question, Janet, um, there's probably a difference between minor and major fasts fast, that the major fast, the Torah uh, with regards to Yom Kippur and the Talmud with regards to um, uh, Tishbav declared being very, very, very important. Uh, with regards to, let's say, the fast of Esther, it's very, very, very minor. It's it's very minor, and uh, I know people that ne- almost never fasted because you know they get lightheaded, they're not feeling so well. Um, you know, my like my wife hasn't fasted on a minor fast in a long time. There's always kids around that she's either nursing or she's pregnant or she's busy or she, you know so it's 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 minor it's called minor for a reason so it's 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 much it's much less strict that's that's the way I would uh, I would uh, answer your question and Shawna you had a question yeah you answered most of it but I mean like what that's the whole point of fasting to uh-huh. suffer so you just said um, restricting yourself from pleasure but. I'm like, water? Is that really a pleasure? I mean, I find it real sense. I have yet to be able to do it. Like, uh-huh. fast a full 24 hours. Uh-huh. I get, well, I'm sure everybody gets irritable, but I get like, hey, <laughs> my mouth is just, I mean, is, isn't water sort of essential? I mean, is it safe to not go without water for 24 hours? I mean. It's 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 safe. No, uh, no one that I know. Um, but if, if someone's healthy, obviously. Provided someone's healthy. If someone's not healthy, there's, there, there's not a lot of fast. And there's a story that there was a typhus outbreak in uh, in Europe in the 19th century. And the rabbi said, no one is allowed to fast because this is something that you're putting your life at risk. And, you know, to tell someone who has always fasted Yom Kippur to not fast, that's like crazy. How do you not, it's Yom Kippur, how do you not fast? You know? Uh, but the rabbis declared without any room for any, you know, that, that, can't fast, and everyone was like, and they were rabbis worried. People would say, "We're fasting anyhow." So, in the main shul, the main rabbi, Rabbi Salanta, we've mentioned his name here before. He, after davening, after, he takes out grape juice, pours himself or wine, whatever, pours himself a cup of wine, and makes kiddush as if it's like a holiday, and starts drinking. It was like, oh, if he's not fasting, we're not fasting either. But yeah, provide someone's healthy, and there's ways to do it. I, I, when I prepare for a fast, during fasting, I never have a hard time because I know how to do it. Okay. You have to about the day before. Well, it's not the day before. You have, you have to think the the way your 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 body retains its water is that whatever you drink today is going to impact your water, your body, 
your body's water composition in three days. So if you decide, like, just a half hour before Yom Kippur to start, like, just drinking three gallons of water, what you'll actually have is just a very long line at the restroom by Colin Andre. That's what will happen. What you need to do is three, four, even five days before that, just keep on drinking an extra cup of water every time, you know, every every half hour, not every half hour, but every hour, every two hours. And then you'll be so perfectly hydrated, you won't even need to, like, engorge yourself before Passover. I mean, is it before, also to be able to just, I don't know, focus more? Or oh, so let's, let, let's, 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 let's talk about Yom Kippur. Okay, so we have... We have we have Rosh Hashanah. We have the day of Rosh Hashanah. We have this minor fast day. We have these ten days, twelve to ten days of tshuva. Remember, the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are linked together. Yom Kippur, we have one of the major things of Yom Kippur. We know it's uh, prayer, obviously. It's fasting. Now, fasting is a Torah mitzvah. It's in the Torah. It's atonement. The Torah declares ki bayom which means in English. For on this day, the day of Yom Kippur. The Almighty will atone for you, will cleanse you. The Torah to purify you from all your sins. Close to God, you shall become pure. We have the day of closeness to God. We have the day of purity and atonement. We have a mitzvah of fasting. There's a tradition to wear white. Uh, we have the idea of being close to God. So how do the all how do all how do these themes well, how are these themes linked? So I always like to use well well what what's the history behind Yom Kippur? What what, what was the first time Yom Kippur was uh, was let's trace back to what happened on that particular day. Golden calf, the sin of the golden calf. Right? Okay, what was that? That was in Mount Sinai when they got together and okay. So but, but when did Moses, but when did that happen? Very good. They waited for Moses, and he didn't come back at the time. He said he was coming back. Okay, so, but what was that? Aaron, you know, kills uh, somebody to follow a god or something, and they build a camp. But what was that? What was that? That was uh, the day. That was the day, day of the year. Huh? The day of the year. Yeah. So the the Mount Sinai experience was on the sixth day right. of Sivan. Fifty days after Passover, six, it was the first day of Passover is the day where the Jews got the Torah at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain, disappears for forty days and forty nights. He comes back. What does he see? He sees them um, worshiping the golden calf. What does he do with the tablets? He breaks them. He destroys them. That day is the seventeenth day of Tammuz, and I mentioned earlier that's one of the minor fast days. It's, it's considered one of the minor fast days because five separate things happened on that day. Number one, Moses broke the tablets. Right? The Jewish people were celebrating with the golden calf. Number two, uh, during the first uh, temple era, the, 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 um, the, uh, when the Babylonians had a siege on Jerusalem, they breached through the, uh, through the walls on this day. And for three weeks, uh, for three weeks up to Tishba before they destroyed the temple, they were just slaughtering uh, the Jews who lived in the, in the city of Jerusalem. That's the second thing. Uh, in the year 132, or during the Bar Kokhba rebellion, uh, someone burnt a Torah scroll on that particular day as well. An idol was instituted in, in, in the temple as well. I think it was also the second. The, 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 the Romans uh, erected a temple, uh, an idol in the temple. And last thing was the daily uh, 
tamid offerings every morning and every afternoon. There's uh, in the temple there were offerings brought, and that season this day as well. But that's that's why it's a minor fast day as well, seventeenth day of Tammuz. Moses destroys the tablet. Okay, goes up again for forty days, right? Trying to renegotiate the Almighty wants to destroy the Jewish people. Goes up a third time, right? Forty days later, which is the first day of Elul. And then the Almighty finally pardons the Jewish people. Salachti I have, uh, I have forgiven them. I have atoned for them, uh, like as, like as per your request. Forty days later, which is on Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur, the first time Yom Kippur is mentioned in, 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 you know, in Jewish life, was when the Almighty finally relented to Moses' prayer and requests and forgave the Jewish people for their sin. Hence the time, which is, which is auspicious for repentance and for atonement. And as the Torah declares, this is the day the Almighty is going to forgive. This is the day of atonement. You said he went up three times? Yes, he went up three times, yes. But if all of the people that left Egypt were a mixed multitude, um, I remember having a conversation with somebody on this one time. Who built the golden calf? Well, what it says is that uh, they came to Aaron they said, someone, we have to have a leader, there was like a posse, a mob, came to Aaron, and he said, okay, give me your, give me your, your gold, and, he, and, and we're trying to, the Talmud judges him quite favorably by saying that he said, well, no one's giving up their gold, no one's throwing in their gold watches and the jewelry, and, um, but they just, they managed to get the gold, and he says, okay, he'll come back tomorrow. Come back and we'll make a party tomorrow. And they all came back tomorrow morning really early, so he didn't know what to do. So they they took all those gold and threw it in the fire. And uh, there were some people there that were well versed in sorcery and witchcraft and whatnot. And they somehow managed to get this golden calf to come out of the fire. And they're like, "What goodness, what's going on? This golden calf." And uh, you know, this was a sin that was perpetrated by. Um, Jews that had not been actually biologically Jewish, but Jews that had um, jumped on the bad wagon. They were actually Egyptians who were just caught up in the wave and joined the Jewish people on the way out of, of Egypt. So you're saying that the mixed multitude, um, everybody in that mixed multitude from henceforth would have been classified as Jews? Well, yeah. Well, that was the, they became Jewish with the rest of the Jews. Uh, Jewish people were just a family, a tribe. They're called the Hebrews. They're not actually a nation until they leave Egypt. Right. So when they left Egypt, they became a nation, and they became a nation with all the people that decided to join. Right. It's just like Moses' wife wasn't biologically Jewish. So right? Because she was... she was a, Exactly. So how did she become Jewish? She became Jewish like everyone else became Jewish. How did Moses become Jewish? So yes, you were part of a family that was destined to become Jewish, but whoever was with the Jewish people uh, in, in, in mind and mission... And purpose at the time of leaving Egypt became Jewish. That's when the that's when the the nation was formed. But there were there were Jews who were Jews, but but they had a, a chosen to join the family of the tribe and join the nation, and they were Egyptian. You know, they were you know they were they were the oppressor that joined the uh, that joined the the mixed multiple as you, as you say that that they joined the Jewish people uh, on the way out of Egypt. 
Uh, and they constantly were a thorn in the side. If you just read throughout Exodus, Leviticus, you know, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it talks about the, the various uh, episodes that that happened to the Jewish people. Most, most all of them were were uh, you know conspired, um, uh, caused by these uh, you know these Jews that decided to show the Jewish people. Well, certainly Moses had his hands full because he did have a multitude of people that that came from various backgrounds. And mm-hmm. I mean, anybody that tries to lead a group of people when the people are also disparate, it almost seems like an impossible task to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. And to lead to lead any amount of Jews, you know, Jews uh, seem to have uh, and, a and way of doing that, things that had different backgrounds. Uh-huh. So. This is a day which is designated for repentance and atonement. This is a day where, like no other, they were the judgment is sealed uh, because it's the it's the, it's the it's the finality of the of the uh, of the Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur uh, time. Uh, but it's also a day where the Almighty first forgave the Jewish people, and because of that, every year the Almighty is going to forgive the Jewish people as well. And therefore, and, and, and how does it matter forgive us? By being close to us, right? I will purify you because we're close, right? Karu bioto karov, as we say all the time. Call out to the Almighty when he's close. This is a time where we're close to the Almighty. We also have a uh, statement of the Talmud that talks about uh, the word Satan, which is the Hebrew uh, Satan, you know, the Jewish Satan. And uh, the, what we call Satan, what the non-Jews, uh, the Christians call Satan, is a different thing. But we call it the uh, the satan is something which uh, is a blockade between man and God. It's a what? It's something which is a blockade, a barrier. Oh, a mm-hmm. And the Talmud makes this very cryptic statement by saying that the gematria, the numerical value of the word hasatan, is 364. Why? Because only for 364 days a year does this satan have power to you know, to be a buffer between God and and the people. Yom Kippur is that one exception. Yom Kippur is a day where we're close to the Almighty, where our our souls, as opposed to our bodies, have uh, more of a say in our you know in our life and our direction. Hence, the fasting of, of Yom Kippur of Yom Kippur is not as a method of mourning. Most fast days, like Tishbub, it's, it's a day of mourning. It's a day of, of seriousness in recognizing our loss and our current state of, of, of being. Yom Kippur is not like that. Yom Kippur is not mourning at all. In fact, Yom Kippur is just living as we would live if we were just a soul. Yom Kippur is a day where we're kind of elevated to the status of angels. There are prayers that we only say on Yom Kippur because these are prayers that are designated for angels. And Jews, not Jews, but people don't have any right to proclaim those prayers. But Yom Kippur we do. Yom Kippur is the day where we wear white to demonstrate the fact that we're pure. We're like angels. We're untarnished by our bodily sins. Yom Kippur is also a day where we show that we could be elevated to this angel-like status and not need to eat. We're not mourning when we're fasting. We're not trying to do self-affliction. We're actually trying to live in a higher plane 
for this one day of the year, we're living like angels. And this closeness uh, is is uh, is what it is what we're trying to demonstrate by saying we don't need to eat. I've never heard that. that yes, uh, Yom Kippur was exactly what you're saying. I've never mm-hmm. read that. I've never heard it before. Well, if you read the Torah. The Torah describes this is the day the Almighty will forgive you right, from, to purify you from all your sins. Lift Hashem close to Hashem, you'll become pure. Karubi Torah, they were close to were close to the Almighty. It's a day where this these this, this barrier is temporarily lifted. Right? It's like prison break. You know, it's it's a time where like just imagine we're all we're all prisoners of our own mind, so to speak. And there's one day just the prison door is left open. And you could just accomplish one as far as you can. Uh, you know, in the other direction. And then after Yom Kippur, it's over. So, and it's important to note, it's not a day that we're trying to make ourselves miserable. Why uh, is one of the prohibitions against wearing leather shoes? Well, it's... Uh, the Torah does um, put this as a day of... of uh, We look at it as uh, uh, afflicting ourselves, but not to cause pain to ourselves, rather to underscore the fact that our body is not the one who's control. So our body says, I want leather shoes. We say, no, your body, you're taking back seat today. So leather shoes, sexual activity, eating and drinking, um, uh, putting uh, like ointment and stuff. And what's the last one? And, and showering and stuff. Point is, is that our, huh? You're not supposed to shower. Well, I don't do everyone showers here every day. Not me. I haven't done shower this morning. But <laughs> don't look at me. I don't shower. I, don't, I can't wake up. Oh, really? Yeah, I had to get up and shower right away. Right I don't know. Whatever. Um, <laughs> really? Everyone showers every day? Every single day? I work at a gym, so I have shoes. Every single day? Yeah. Dan, you don't miss a day of showering? No. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have a list of me like, I'm, sorry, I'm so strange. <laughs> it's about I every other day. you weren't supposed to drink water on Yom Kippur. Well, that's, yeah, that's... I mean, I know that you weren't supposed to um, not be drinking things, but I didn't know that water was on the list. Yeah, so, but but the theme is, is that our body's taking the match seat. Okay. I think it's cheating, though, like Rabbi Cohen turned me on to wearing Crocs on Yom Kippur, and I'm like, this is way more comfortable than my other <laughs> shoes. It's like totally cheating on the whole thing. Uh... I know, but you don't really ground well yeah, when you're wearing rubber. You need to wear leather to ground. That but leather, leather, leather shoes supposedly is uh, something that you reach and everything. And so uh, on that day, you you don't have anything, right? No, but it's 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 not it's not it's not suffering for suffering's sake. It's suffering by a recognition of the body being secondary to the soul. Okay. Hence, man being close to God. And that's why we wear white, we pray like angels, and we fast. And I want to make another point, point that the Talmud makes, which is very interesting. We know that we were destined to be an eternal nation. Why? Because that's what the Almighty promised. That's why it's all over the Torah. We're going to be an eternal nation. We'll be around forever. And even though there are so many factors that would, uh, you know, all things being equal, contribute to our demise very, very quickly. The fact that we're scattered amongst many nations, the fact that we're not united with the homeland or language, the fact that we're small in number, few in number, uh, the fact that we're persecuted, we're marginalized, and anti-Semitism is a real thing. 
Uh, it's been around. It's it's ubiquitous. Uh, it's been around for thousands of years. There's so many factors that should contribute to the Jewish people just ceasing to exist. We've been captured by many many times, and ancient civilizations, as the the mighty civilizations, just disappear, and we're still around. And in Jewish philosophy, we say that the reason why the Jewish people are around forever is because of Yom Kippur. How's that? So the Talmud makes a statement saying that the Almighty does not collect retribution from a nation until it fills its share, so to speak. What does that mean? That means that nations are granted life and the ability to impact civilizations uh, until they reach a point where they have where their sins accumulate to the point of no return. And once they reach a certain uh, measure of sin, so to speak, then, then they disappear. That's the way it works. And therefore, even the mighty civilizations were so do- dominated the world, the Greeks and the Romans, the ancient Egyptians, they were huge. The, 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 the Byzantines, the Ottomans, go, go throughout the, the history, you have these mighty emperor, uh, empires that spanned the world over, you know, hundreds of millions of subjects, and they disappeared. Uh, in Jewish philosophy, we say is that because they, 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 these nations are granted a certain asylum, a certain immunity, to a point, once their sins have accumulated and they reach their fill, whatever that means, whatever that fill is, then they, the Almighty Corridor collects retribution and they cease to exist. The Jewish people are kind of like that as well. We also have a certain amount, a certain measure that would, uh, that would necessitate us just ceasing to exist as a people. But because every year, on the 10th day of Tishrei, that, those sins are expunged. This is the day that the Yomai is going to forgive the Jewish people. The Yomai is to forgive us, to purify us from all our sins. That thing is just brought back to zero, or, or close, close to zero. It's a day which is designated to the Yomai forgive the Jewish people's sins. And that just gives us, grants us life to live another day. To, uh, to continue to exist, even though the factors that should seemingly contribute to our downfall are just so overwhelming. So overwhelming and just so apparent. And we're always going to be a small number, as we're foretold in the Torah. We're always going to be scattered throughout the nations. We, we, you know, they, we, we, there'll be Jews on every corner of the world, united by nothing other than the Torah and just the, their identity. Marginalized physically, economically, socially, in every which way, right? banned from having businesses, banned from this, banned from that, banned from that, kicked out of countries, uh, surviving Holocaust expulsions, inquisitions, pogroms, blood libels, we're still around because, on a spiritual level, our time has not yet come because of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur just gives us uh, the, the spiritual breathing room to live another year. Yeah, Shauna. Um. So yeah. Say, you do it as a community, and if you as an individual choose not to, yeah, you would die. Well, well, or so, so, we're so, all gonna die. yeah. Like so, what does that mean? Uh, what it, what it means when you? Know, majority of people don't fast. Still yeah, yeah. Well, well. First of all, the majority of people that don't fast typically, you know, half the Jews are just probably don't go to shul and Yom Kippur. Uh, it's most of them is because they're they're not. Uh, they're 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 not they're guilty of nothing more than just ignorance. 
So those people always judge different people. Don't go to shul. Don't the parents never taught them about what it means to be Jewish. I'm thinking if, if anyone that chooses not to would just come and sit there and listen to why you do. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah so people don't know. It makes complete sense. Yes, yeah, so people don't know. They're they're never judge. I don't. We we don't have the tools to judge anyone. Uh, only the Almighty could truly yeah. judge someone. But uh, what is clear is that if someone doesn't know, like if someone is ignorant, well, they, they're obviously not judged like that. But even someone who knows and someone who deliberately makes a decision to not participate in the Jewish people, you know, so when when it means that they die, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be physically dead. It means that they'll be spiritually dead. Oh, okay. So that means that this year um, they will have a spiritual descent that they may never come back from. Right, if you do what you're supposed to do this coming year, you already have your reward. If you do your fasting and everything you do, then you will flourish in the next year. Mm-hmm. But if, if yeah, but even the, the 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 flourishing and the and the death does not necessarily have to be in the physical realm. Like right. in the words of William Wallace, every man dies, not every man truly lives. 1995, best picture. Braveheart. Mel Gibson. Oh, I can't see Mel Gibson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what an anti-Semite. But come on, what, a, what, a, what an actor. Okay. So, yeah, so, yeah. He's that, so this, yesterday. Huh? He's so yesterday. Well, that's true, but... Uh, well, he's a lot more than just yesterday. He's so, like, 1990s, but... Great film. Braveheart. Long. Uh, but the point, the point being, is that, and that's right. That, that yes, someone could be alive and the heart pumping, but are they really alive? Got it. Okay, that makes sense. So that's Yom Kippur. Uh, what comes after Yom Kippur? Five days later, Sukkot. Now Sukkot is a little bit of a bizarre holiday. Sukkot. Well, what are we? What are we celebrating? The harvest. The harvest. Basukot teshu shivat yamim. In a sukkah, in a temporary dwelling, you should live for seven days. Why? What does the Torah say? The tents they had what? The permanence, not non-permanence. The tents they had where? Right. The tents had a desert to remind us to that not to feel safe because we're in a structure, but just feel safe in God's presence. Okay, that's very good. That's that's another theme of the holiday. The idea of you know we're all temporary, Uh, but the reason why. It really linked to the Exodus and the ensuing 40 years that they lived in a temporary dwelling, like relying on the Almighty. But it's placed in a very bizarre location in the Jewish calendar. Seemingly, maybe we should, on Passover, we should be in temporary dwellings eating matzah. Or maybe we should eat matzah on Sukkot. Uh, Because from the calendar's perspective, it should be when the Jews, if, if it's Exodus linked, it should really be where the Exodus happened, which is in the month of Nisan, the beginning of, of spring. Now, uh, it's at the beginning of the winter, right? October, November time. So that's an interesting point, number one. Point number two uh, of the holiday, so we sit, we sit in temporary dwellings, we also have the four species. The mitzvah, the, there are two mitzvahs uh, of Sukkot, Sitting in temporary dwellings, uh, living, so to speak, for seven days in temporary dwellings, and also the mitzvah of the four species. What are these four species? It's a it's a, uh, a willow branch or a willow branch, a palm branch, 
a lulav, an etrog, a citron, um, uh, the willow branches, the the hadassim, and the and, and the, the myrtle and a myrtle. Uh, and these four elements are united, and there's a certain mitzvah, you're supposed to shake them, and what does that even mean? What, what's the essence of that? It's just another part of the ritual. And last thing, it's always marked with happiness. It's called, uh, Sukkot is a day of our happiness, of our joy, of our simcha, happiness, joy. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the label of the holiday. So it's a holiday which is a holiday of joy, it's a time where we take a lulav of an etrog and a, a hadassim and a ravot, we shake it, and it's time we sit in t- temporary dwelling. So, like other holidays, it's kind of, uh, there's more than one aspect to it. So we have the idea of exodus. Right? Exodus and the ensuing uh, 40 years that the Jews lived in a very temporary dwelling, relying on the Almighty. So the sages point out that if we were to make this memorialization of this temporary dwelling, if we were to do that, during the springtime, when the exodus actually happened, so we would move into gazebos for seven days, what would people say? People say, hey, it's, it's nice weather outside, it's springtime, it's gazebo time. It's a very normal thing to go live in a tent, or not live in a tent, but to live in outdoors during the spring. People won't recognize that what you're doing is you're doing for a specific purpose. To point you back to a specific you know, point in time. Beginning of the winter, there's rain. In some places it gets real cold. I remember as a kid in New York, it's too cold, like outside, like trying to warm yourself up. When you leave your permanent dwelling, your cozy home, and you move outside during the winter, people notice it. People notice it. Bless you. Um, Hence, it, it'll ha- it has that impact of making people recognize that something special is happening. Now, the four species. So, once again, what the Talmud does, it links Sukkot and comes right after, after, after Yom Kippur. Five days later. It seems like it's got to be linked in some, in some way, you know, in some fashion. So, Talmud says, very much connected to our previous point, that when someone goes to judgment, someone goes to battle, and they emerge victorious, what do they do? They come back triumphantly brandishing their sword. We won. The lulav looks like a sword. So the lulav is this demonstration of Jewish continuity. We won again. We've been around for thousands of years, and every year in Yom Kippur, we go to battle, to fight for our very existence, and once again we win, and we emerge victorious. And right after that, we have the holiday of joy. We're joyous because we live to see another year, Jewish continuity, and we demonstrate that by holding up the lulav. Now, uh, the Talmud also points out that the lulav and the four species are unique because some of the species are taste good and smell good. Some of them have a taste and a smell. Some of them don't have a taste nor a smell. Some of them have one, not the other. So you have four species which which uh, each represent one of the four kinds of Jews. Jews who have scholarship uh, and have uh, actions, mitzvahs. Jews that have neither and Jews that have one, not the other. So either scholarship and not mitzvahs or mitzvahs, not scholarship. These are the four different kinds of Jews. And you know what? If you want to celebrate the mitzvah of Sukkot properly, 
you have to take all the four kinds of Jews and put them together. You just do scholarship and and actions and activities, right? Uh, Having both, having neither, having one and not the other, or the other one and not the former. So you mean mean like knowledge, the actions, the mitzvah, having one or the other? Yes. Right, so there's some Jews that have mitzvahs and scholarship, like us. There are some Jews that have uh, scholarship but not mitzvahs. Some of the Jews have mitzvahs but not scholarship, and some Jews, unfortunately, have neither. But as a Jewish nation, we live and die as a nation. We live and die. We live and die as a nation, and our successes and our failures are only united. And on Yom Kippur, when we go to battle, we go to battle together as a nation. And when we emerge victorious, it's also as a nation. It's also together. All of us together. The idea of us, we were judged as a community. We were judged as a group. And we emerged victorious as a group. And that's why, like, back to Yom Kippur, it's important for you to make sure you're associated with this with this group as well. Uh, so that's uh, the idea of Sukkot. So we got the... Uh, perfect, 11.30. Uh, so what we covered today, just briefly, is uh, the idea of the calendar and how it works and the structure, the format of the of the Jewish calendar, the centrality of the calendar, and we did the first three holidays, of, which are really viewed as you know kind of one, you know it's it's just it's it's one group of holidays because Rosh Hashanah, Judgment, Renewal of the Kingdom, God, you know uh, God's Kingdom, but also yeah the idea of personal reinvention, right? Formation of man, uh, the 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 period between Rosh Hashanah and, and Yom Kippur are the days of repentance. Uh, Yom Kippur is a day where the, where the Almighty is just gracefully repenting, uh, forgiving us for our sins. It's a day where we're close to Him. We we were elevated from being physical to more spiritual beings for one day, and that has its ramifications for us in our subjugation of our body, so to speak. And then we have the aftermath of, of Sukkot, which is kind of the celebration. It's the joy in the uh, basting, in the uh, throes of victory uh, afterwards. And also, once again, being very cognizant of the Jewish people being a unified nation. Next week, uh, we're going to continue this, and we're going to do Hanukkah, the minor fast day called the 10th day of Teves. We're going to do Purim, the minor fast day that predates Purim, called the Fast of Esther. Obviously, Passover, which is very timely because Passover is upcoming really closely. Shavuos, Lagba uh, Omer. I forgot to write that down. Lagba Omer, the, the the Omer, counting the Omer between the uh, Pesach and and Sukkot. Lagba Omer. I write that down. Uh, the seventh day of Tammuz. We actually mentioned there's five elements to the seventh day of Tammuz, the minor fast day. Tishabov. And uh, and we'll finish the year talking about the month of Elul, which is the final month, and which is the preparation to Rosh Hashanah. So that's that. Anyone has any other questions, comments, uh, points of interest, uh, concerns? Oh, thank you. A lot of information. The one of the common themes was about that uh, we have responsibility for each other. So in that vein, let's get our friends in here and. Uh, Get more of yeah, our, our community in this, in this class. To keep them. So. Okay.